Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for uh, braving the beautiful temperatures of Spokane, Washington, to come out for this morning. Um, <clears throat> last week was the start of the calendar year, and uh, for Clipboard Sunday, we had little clipboards available, and students could write and uh, like draw pictures and do things, but there was also a little activity last week that was about reflection. So they took a moment to review 2023, but then there were also a few questions about what they were aspiring to for 2024. Well, thankfully, when uh, they dropped off their clipboards, quite a few students left their aspirational sheets, and so I figured I would take a few and uh, with anonymity just share a few that I enjoyed the most uh, for our viewing pleasure. Um, the first, 2023 in review, greatest lesson I learned, I should not sneak. 2024's goals. Next slide. Not to sneak. I mean, that is awesome. <laughs> Learned not to. This year, I will not. Okay. Um, also aspiring for 2024, this next slide. What am I looking forward to? What do I want to learn? Nothing. What do I want to get better at? Nothing. What, do I, what are my goals for 2024? Nothing. Now, there's two ways to look at that. One, someone needs a little bit of motivation, a little bit of an idea of goal setting. But another way to look at it is they're so confident that they're just living into who they're supposed to be. Why set goals? I just am what I need to be. Uh, next, I just got a couple more. Uh, 2023 highlights, greatest lesson I learned, God is with us, or God is with me, which I think is a beautiful statement. Then uh, also, what is the hardest thing from 2023? Church. So, it is, it's good to know that you sense the presence of God, but also that this might be a tough space for you to be. Well, welcome. Uh, hopefully, uh, they... <laughs> along with all of us, have been able to uh, start imagining what 2024 might hold for us. And uh, if you were here last week, we were kicking off the liturgy and really leaning into the first Sunday after Epiphany. And uh, you might remember that Kevin shared a bit of an illustration. Uh, the illustration he shared was uh, him giving an appropriate goodbye to his college couch. I don't know if you were able to hear this or not, but uh, there's a picture. Uh, Kevin told all of us that he drove with his friend to Deception Pass and then heaved his couch off the top till it hit and then sank all the way to the very bottom. So I figured that I should say that the staff and elders at New Community care deeply about our responsibility to care for the earth. And none of the actions expressed last week and in any way do we condone. So I just wanted to set the record straight in case those illustrations made you think that was something we could all aspire to. I did a little bit of research this week and found out that illegal dumping infractions actually in the state of Washington result in fines of $2,500. I also found that for every 60 days of an unpaid fine, 
20% is added to the fee. So 20 years since that infraction, Kevin owes the Washington Department of Parks and Rec approximately $62,500. So I, I say that, kids, because the decisions you make when you don't have a frontal lobe can come back to haunt you many years later. So, I, all, in all uh, seriousness, though, just obviously kidding about that, but in all seriousness, I do think this is a, a unique time to make an announcement. In the upcoming year, we actually have several initiatives planned and in the works uh, to do some stuff around creation care. I know Mary's going to be working uh, with us on a short. Uh, we've got some things happening that uh, Kevin is leaning into and inviting us to lean into in terms of book studies and a bunch of things that over this next year will actually be initiatives around creation care. So I joke about that, but in all seriousness, it's something that we think is vitally important to be stewards of all that God has given us. And uh, you'll hear more about that. We'll do some of that in the spring and then again in the fall. Uh, so something to look forward to. Uh, today, as many of you know, is the eve of Martin Luther King Day, and so I figured I would start with a little history lesson. Many of you are aware that on Good Friday of 1963, there was a little protest that took place in Birmingham, Alabama. You've seen images of the Birmingham police using dogs to break up what was a peaceful protest. They carted protesters off to jail, among them the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. History tells us that he spent several nights in a jail cell equipped with a metal cot, but without a mattress. And at some point, uh, King began to write out a letter. The letter was addressed not to the perpetrators of the violence, not to those who abused, but it was to those who observed the abuse and did nothing about it. His famous letter to the Birmingham jail was actually addressed to eight white Alabama clergymen. King wrote this in 1963, about four months before the March on Washington, and he made this statement. There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. But things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak and effectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled 
by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church, we, do not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. It's interesting to me that the liturgical passages for day are fall on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day where we remember the life and legacy of Dr. King, but also a day where we seek to reaffirm our commitment to fight for justice and equality. Our passage for this morning is 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 10. And you'll notice that uh, when it appears in the lectionary, it appears this way, with verses 1 through 10 listed, and then verses 11 through 20 in parentheses. Now, typically, this means to the preacher at the time that uh, the additional verses are optional. They're kind of a fielder's choice. You can do it or not. Uh, Other times, when you'll see this in the lectionary, it is kind of serving as a ratings warning, like mature themes ahead, parental guidance required, that kind of thing. It's letting you know that this is part of the story, but let's not really get into that. And most of the time when the church approaches the passage that we're going to talk about today, they just simply stop at verse 10. In fact, if all we had was the first 10 verses of the story, it's pretty idyllic. It's amazing, actually. It's a story of hope, a story of possibility, a story of a young person who hears the voice of God and responds. And the story is one that challenges us to listen to a God who speaks, to be a people who listen, to be aware of the voice of God, to be constantly attuned to what God might be saying to us. And so the lectionary cuts off at verse 10 before we get to the words of judgment. And as a teacher, it's always easier to teach a text that doesn't require us to mention judgment. But our passage highlights something significant. The text says this, See, I'm about to do a new thing in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. Now I want to give you a little bit of a context for understanding our passage this morning. Uh, The book of Judges takes place right before this in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, We get Judges, and when Judges wraps up, And even as it's describing what it looks like to live in the time of Judges, it says this, that all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was living for themselves, doing as they saw fit. You switch a chapter or two over and you come into 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel starts off with Eli and his sons. The text begins to tell us about the way in which his sons who were under studies in kind of the priesthood and were uh, leading worship for the people of Israel. Uh, At the same time, they were stealing from the sacrifices and uh, having some unsavory actions with the women who were at the tent of meeting. So the times were dark. Everything in the text indicates that. In fact, the passage 
that we're looking off starts with this line. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. I mean, that's the context. You don't really need to say much more than that. The word of the Lord was rare. Now, whenever we come to this story, for those of you that grew up within the church, those of you that are familiar with it, uh, most of the time, the first thing that comes to mind is it's a story about listening. Speak now for your servant is listening. This confusion about who's speaking, this pursuit of hearing the voice of God, all of it centers on listening. But on closer examination, I really believe that the text has a different sense in mind. It's all about sight or about seeing. Part of what leads me to that conclusion is our four passages for today that are in the lectionary. All of them seem to resonate with this theme of seeing. In 1 Samuel, we encounter Eli who's losing his sight. In the Psalms, we see a God described as one that sees us regardless of where we are. Psalm 139 says he sees us before we are formed, but he also sees us whether we go high or low, the greatest heights or the lowest depths, he is with us. Then you have 1 Corinthians where Paul urges the readers to see themselves as God sees them, as sacred vessels for the glory of God. And then the last, the gospel for this particular Sunday is Jesus seeing Nathanael and then speaking with Nathanael in such a way that Nathanael then sees Jesus as he is the Son of God and declares that to a group of people. And so I began to relook at the passage and just begin to ask myself if this isn't a story about listening but is more a story about seeing, what are the things that are surfacing in the text and what, we, what might we have eyes to see in this particular passage. And the first and easiest thing to notice is the contrast between the two central characters. The text reads this way. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the way that you describe characters as well as the setting in which the narrative takes place are vitally important. And what you see is this strong contrast. You see Eli, who is in a dark night. His eyes had become weak. He has no ability to see. He's in his place, the text says, in his bed, in his room. Samuel is also in that same dark night, but instead, the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. Samuel's able to see clearly. Not only that, he was in the temple of the Lord, and the text makes it very clear that that's where the ark was, meaning the very presence of God. So Eli was in his place, Samuel was in God's place. Eli was unable to see, Samuel was able to see based on the presence of God and the lamp still being lit. And so this writer is making stark contrast between these two characters. And then that contrast keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we get into 1 Samuel 
chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. And the text says this, And the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also. If you hide anything from me of all that he has told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. As I was saying, we all love a story of a eager young boy who listens to the voice of God and responds. And I think as we read the text, regardless of whether you're young and you hear it and you hear this story or whether you're older, we all want to be Samuel. We all aspire to be the one that hears the voice of God and then responds in obedience. But this week, I've been asking myself a lot, what if you're not Samuel? What if we're actually Eli? What if instead of wanting to be the hero that speaks truth to power, what if we are actually the power? What do you then do with the text? If you come from a place of privilege, of power, of authority, whether in your role or in your resources, whether in your job, whether in your family, whatever it might be. And so it appears that in this particular passage that one of the quote-unquote, sins of Eli's is that he is passive. He doesn't speak out about the abuse of power. Instead, he remains silent. He doesn't speak out about his own household, and likely it indicates, because we're coming from Judges into 1 Samuel, that he's equally as passive to speak about evil within the land. Sin isn't being dwelt with. People aren't being called into justice and holiness. And it's all on Eli's watch. And so I start to ask myself the question, what if Eli's part of the story makes us ask, are we Eli? And in which ways have we neglected to have a voice and to speak up regarding the ills of our culture? Have we passed on times where we could give a voice to the voiceless? or to stand with those being oppressed. Dr. King said it this way, the day we see the truth and cease to speak is the day we begin to die. Rabbi David Lerner said, the rabbis of the Talmud teach us that silence is acquiescence. Our silence in the face of wrong behavior means that we accept the immoral action Silence in the face of evil is not just terribly wrong, hurting 
the victims of those actions, but it also encourages this behavior to continue creating future victims. And so I think we have to ask, are we in some way like Eli? Or are we like Samuel, a boy who has an opportunity to speak truth to power? Another thing I think the text helps us to see, especially about Samuel, is that God seems to continue to call the unexpected ones. Samuel's an outsider in the narrative. He was not born kind of into the priesthood. He, if you know the story, Hannah is barren, is hoping for a child, and then dedicates Samuel to the temple. And so this is a really young boy. The text says that he doesn't even know the Lord yet. He is like so new to everything that he's trying to figure it out. So God chooses the youngest person in the story, the least qualified person in the story, and it seems that he has a habit of doing that. All throughout the text, God continues to choose the ones we don't expect. You have Jacob and Joseph, you have Moses and David, all unlikely choices. You come to the New Testament, Jesus seems to choose fishermen and laborers instead of priests and prophets. He's always going for the outsider, the one that doesn't quite measure up. Again, if you look throughout the text, you see example after example of people who are less than, people who are unqualified, people that have no power, that feel voiceless, and he asks them to be the ones that speak to the power. You have Moses who talks about being tongue-tied and an inability to communicate, having to go to the most powerful man in the whole known world at the time, the Pharaoh. You have Samuel here speaking to Eli, but then later Samuel speaks to the first king, Saul, and declares that he is not following the ways of God. You have Nathan a little bit later who speaks to King David and points at him and says, you are the man. You have Elijah to Ahab, you have Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar, you have John the Baptist to Herod, you have Jesus to Pilate. Over and over, you have these stories, and they require us in some ways to ask the question, am I Samuel? Am I taking the opportunity to speak truth to power? Am I creating opportunities to stand up for and speak for the oppressed? And what I mean by that is not, did you tweet it? Or did you black out your Instagram photo? Or are you going to post a quote tomorrow from Martin Luther King? All those little micro-expressions, are they helpful? I don't know. Maybe. Perhaps. But I think they fall far short of what we as kingdom followers are called to do. Marching tomorrow, and I do invite you and, and hope that you join us. Marching tomorrow is just another small small step. I think what this requires is speaking out about inequity and injustice, not just as individual problems, but as systemic problems. Something that keeps going and going and going. Uh, I think our call as followers requires us to stand up for anyone considered to be an outsider. Anyone marginalized, anyone told they are not one of us, do not belong, because they're from a different group or gender or orientation or 
party or community or religion or creed or custom, any of it. Whatever we do is designed to create an opportunity for us to be people who can remind everyone that everyone is invited to the table. The table that we partook in just a few minutes ago, that every single person is welcomed. All have been invited. There's complete equality in the family of God, and it is something that we continue as this community to aspire to let every single person know. I believe New Community continues to hold fast to the idea that the church by its silence has been complicit and it is our duty to be a community that gives voice to the voiceless, to speak truth like Samuel. Martin Luther King makes this statement. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because one's conscience tells one that it is right. Now it would be easy, and I'm half tempted, to end here with Samuel being the hero and speaking truth to power and Eli being the tired old man that can't see any longer and has no vision for the future. And so I just want to kind of pigeonhole Eli into this particular perspective and to say that he's the problem in the passage, right? That he's weak on his standards, he's unwilling to confront, he's not speaking up for those that need a voice. Uh, but humans are complex creatures. Can we all agree? And I think this week what struck me the most, actually, was who Eli also was. Because it's so easy for us just to see him through the lens of one particular thing he consistently didn't do and to fail to recognize maybe all he was doing. So Eli, let me list a few of the things. He was a fantastic mentor. He discipled one of the most significant prophets of the people of Israel. He taught Samuel to hear from Holy Spirit and to listen for the voice of God. He pointed Samuel to God, not to himself as a leader. So many leaders try to point someone they're mentoring to themselves or to their cause rather than to point people to the one we all should be aspiring to be. Eli created space to be challenged. He listened to feedback. He welcomed correction. You know the number of times that people step out of line and someone with a voice comes to speak and instead it's shut down. Eli instead welcomes it, listens, hears. He makes no attempt to restate, reinterpret, interpret, or control the narrative or the negative message that Samuel brought from God. In fact, nothing in the text indicates that he even resisted not God's new direction for Samuel to take over leadership and for him to step aside. Everything seems to indicate that he said, so be what the Lord said, and then began to live into that. Which also indicates that he trusted God completely. 
And then Eli gave permission, and I love this, to follow God down new and unfamiliar paths. He didn't know where it would lead. He didn't know what to expect for the future. He was no longer in control. And yet he said, let's follow God. So in some ways, this is a story of him not speaking out when he needed to speak out. But in other ways, this is an intergenerational story of cooperation and faithfulness. Of Eli being someone who continued to invest in the next generation in such a way that they could go even further with the message. In many ways, it is a reminder to us to continue to respond with faithfulness in spite of our failings, to continue to lean into the grace of God and to believe that we are not defined by the worst of who we are, nor are we defined by the best of who we think we are, but we are solely defined by the grace of God and his goodness in our life. The beautiful thing is the passage ends with this little phrase. And the Lord appeared again. Not a cool phrase. So you start the verse with, there are no visions, there is no voice of the Lord. And you end after Eli's obedience and the word of the Lord, and it says this, and the Lord appeared again. What a cool revolution. What a cool change. I'll finish with one final statement from Dr. Martin Luther King reminding us of a powerful reflection he delivered at the National Cathedral. He said this, one of the great liabilities of life is that all too many people find themselves living amidst a great period of social change, and yet they fail to develop the new attitudes, the new mental responses that the new situation demands. They end up sleeping through a revolution. May we, like Eli and like Samuel, be counted among those who were a part of it instead of those who slept through it. Let's pray. God, I am convinced that even little minute steps and practices, ways of standing up for someone else, ways of creating space, ways of allowing ourselves to be challenged. All of that is slowly moving us, slowly bringing us closer to your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We believe in love. We believe that we are invited to be people that express that love to all. Help us to lean into that, not just tomorrow, not just when we're inspired by stories of Samuel or Eli, but God, may in the very unnoticed moments of our lives, may we continue to fight for justice. May we continue to be people that aspire for your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.